Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CAPITAL and your first wager is risk-free up to $1,000. Visit BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. New customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable free bets or site credit. Free bets expire seven days from issuance. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700. Hello and welcome to En Route, the podcast where we talk about life along the way. I'm Dennis Sanders, and I am your host. I usually say this at the end of the podcast, but I want to say it now. Thank you for listening. If you like what you're hearing, considering consider subscribing to the show on your favorite podcast platform. It would mean a lot if you took the time to subscribe. You can find Enroute on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Bullhorn, and a number of other platforms. You can also leave a rating or a review on your podcast platform as well. When you do that, it makes it a lot easier for others to find this podcast. And, by the way, did you know that Enroute has a YouTube channel? Check out the show notes for the link, and then consider subscribing. Well, late last week, we got news that Anthony Gonzalez, a second-term GOP congressman from Ohio, has decided to not seek a third term in 2022. He gave the usual reason of wanting to spend more time with his family, but in an interview with the New York Times, Gonzalez gave another reason. He was one of a small number of Republicans that voted to impeach President Trump in the wake of the January 6th insurrection. Because of his vote, he got a Trump-backed challenger for the upcoming Republican primary, and to top it all off, his family was subjected to death threats. The departure of Gonzalez is one of a long line of Republicans that have left Congress because of, of the former president. Political commentator Jonah Goldberg wrote in a recent column that the retirement of Gonzalez shows that there is no safe harbor for Republicans who don't bend the knee to former President Trump. It does seem that any Republican, whether in Washington or in in state capitals, cannot stay neutral when it comes to Trump. You can either support the former president or suffer the consequences. There is no middle ground. What happened to Gonzalez is proof positive to many that the Republican Party is now firmly in the grasp of former President Trump. But don't tell that to Ariel Hill Davis. Hill Davis is one of four co-founders of Republican Women for Progress. Started in the wake of Donald Trump's 2016 campaign and subsequent victory, Republican Women for Progress is an organization whose mission is that Republican women deserve to speak up, not stand aside. Hill Davis says Republican Women for Progress is an attempt to create space for women who are interested in governing and not political theatrics. So let's learn more about Republican Women for Progress with our guest, Ariel Hill Davis. Thank you, um, Ariel, for joining me this morning. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, I'm happy to be here and, and glad that that Reed could make the introduction for us. Definitely. He's a good guy. And, um, he is yeah. such a good guy. <laughs> <laughs> so 
I think the first thing I wanted to to um, talk about is kind of tell me the story of Republican Women for Progress. What brought it about, um, and what are kind of your plans in the future? Yeah, absolutely. Um, great question. So I think before I kind of give you an intro to Republican Women for Progress, I. I'll give you some context for where I come from. Okay. Um, so uh, I grew up in a moderate Republican family. Um, you know, I think kind of the closest thing is is New England Republican. Uh, both my parents, though, were very politically active. So I grew up with my siblings talking politics around the dining room table. Um, and then when I graduated from college, I came to Washington, D.C., had the pleasure of working for, um, you know, a great moderate Representative Mike Castle from Delaware. Mm -hmm. um, he's actually, I think, kind of his experience um, getting primaried um, in 2010 was really kind of the bellwether for what we saw with the Tea Party and I think laid the groundwork for where the Republican Party is now. But, um, you know, love, love being a moderate Republican and very much kind of more in the like, you know, fiscally conservative, socially more liberal space for myself personally. But um, yeah, I think it's been an interesting experience being a professional in Washington, D.C. So um, I think that kind of movement from growing up being a moderate Republican, coming to D.C., doing some hard work here, and, you know, really understanding the political process a little bit more, um, since that's what I do every day, all day. Um, when 2016 came around and, you know, we were watching what was unfolding in the Republican primary, um, a couple of women, including our founders, Jennifer Lim and Megan Malloy, were some of the first to step out in the Republican Party and say that Donald Trump was the wrong direction for our party to be going as a nominee. Um, Jennifer spoke at the Democratic Convention endorsing Hillary Clinton. So, you know, very much out in, you know, front and center 2016. And um, I remember at the time just feeling very lost, feeling like, I don't know what's going on in my party. This does not represent kind of my values where I think the value should be. And when I saw Jennifer speak, I basically was like, oh, these are my people. This is, this is gonna be, this is gonna be my safe haven. Um, so I tracked both of them down online and basically forced them to spend time with me so that I could kind of feel like I had a political, a political community still. And so we, we started out as Republican women for Hillary um, mm -hmm. in 2016. And it was a whole bunch of, you know, Republicans who worked in DC, worked in public policy. We were able to kind of expand the network into a lot of different states where other Republican women were feeling lost. And then obviously Donald Trump won the election in 2016, which was not the outcome that we wanted. And we had to regroup and we had to think, you know, where do we think the best space for us is? Because I'm not a Democrat and nobody within our organization is a, are Democrats, but it is really challenging right now, I think, to be a more institutionalist or more traditional mm -hmm. uh, Republican. And also then I think we've been seeing kind of a shrinking space for moderates within the Republican Party anyway. So, which is a different subsection, I think, than how people sometimes conceptualize traditional Republicans, right? Because you still oftentimes have that presumption of, um, you know, either coming at it from a religious perspective and being more socially conservative, which is fine. We believe in a big temp party in our organization. Mm -hmm. But we've seen the shrinking space anyway. So where were we going to put our energy to create more space for people like us? Um, and a lot of people left the party in 2016. I think we've seen kind of a steady exodus uh, since 2016 of people who are center right, who are you know maybe a little bit more socially liberal in certain ways. Um, and even people who are still very socially conservative that just say like, this doesn't represent my, my values at all. Um, so in 2017, we reformed as Republican Women for Progress and we are focused in two main areas. The first is when we looked around in 20, 2016 and then 2018, it got even worse. Uh, the number of Republican women serving in federal office is very, very small compared to our Democratic counterparts. And I think they're a myriad of reasons for this that I'm, I'm happy to unpack with you a little bit more, but we took a look around and we said, we actually think that part of the reason why our party is so far afield is because we have a fairly homogenous group in leadership. We don't have that many women. We don't have a lot of people of color. 
like we need to diversify who's at the table for us because otherwise we're going to keep kind of getting more and more homogenous and kind of more virulent in that homo homogeneity. Um, so we were like, we need to build a, an infrastructure to support Republican women running for office. We're about, I think like 30 years behind the Democrats doing this. Um, Emily's list actually started because the Democrats realized that the, the party structure itself was not supporting women running for office. So they created basically external infrastructure to support women. And that is kind of how we've gotten the feeder, like the feeder program basically for the Democratic side. Mm -hmm. The Republican side just doesn't have that. So in 2017, we decided we wanted to build that. <laughs> so that's what we're working on building. And then the other part of this is also pushing back and wanting to see a reformed Republican party that is focused on good governance and, you know, is more of a big tent. Um, a modernized big tent is what I like to say, because I actually don't, I, I don't like the idea of kind of hearkening back and wanting to move backwards. I want to move mm -hmm. forwards with more modern interpretations of what it means to be a Republican. So, you know, we've spent the last five years really kind of pushing back on what we see as um, attacks on our democratic institutions. Um, you know, we're called never Trumpers a lot of the time, which is accurate. Um, in, in a certain extent, but we don't like to peg it directly to him because we we see Trump as being a symptom. We don't see him as being kind of like the nexus. And you know, once he's gone, it'll it'll all go back to normal. We don't yeah. think that that's yeah. what's going to happen. So those are kind of the two main areas that we're focused though, and they they play very nicely together. We oftentimes find that um, you know, particularly in kind of the suburban Republican woman demographic. Um, then our message of kind of big tent, um, a little bit softer on some of like the social issues, but, you know, still very focused on the, the financial and the fiscal and the economic issues, that that really is a sweet spot for Republican women. And, um, you know, one that, that I think needs to be cultivated a little bit more, um, more widely, but yeah, that's kind of the, those are the lanes that we exist in as Republican Women for Progress. Well, you have talked about big tent and I, looking at your website, that that's very clear. So you talked about a modern version of a big tent. How would you define that? How is it different from hearkening from the big tent maybe of 30, 40 years ago? Yeah, well, I think, I think that what I mean when I say I'm a modernized and a reformed big tent is you run into this problem, right? When you talk about big tent, that if I'm saying I want space as a moderate, then Theoretically, I should be making space for, you know, the Marjorie Taylor Greens and things of that nature in the party, right? And I I believe that there are some tenets that need to be kind of like upheld. I think like a, a respect for our democratic institutions and the rule of law is like a non-negotiable for me. Mm -hmm. So I don't want those elements in, in our tent, right? And I don't want to play for those elements in our tent. Um, so that's kind of like one thing where I think like there still need to be some guardrails. Yes. But I think the other thing that I talk about when I say Big Ten is I think that when you think about the Big Ten of Ronald Reagan's years, I think that there was a lot of papering over of, of issues that were going to kind of grow and impact our nation. Um, and I think that it is partly because, again, the governing class has largely been kind of a, a an older white male governing <laughs> class. So even if it was very well intended, and even if they want wanted to be a big tent, I don't think there were enough different people at the table to actually have classified it as a big tent. Um, so I think that when I conceptualize a more welcoming kind of Republican big tent, you know, I'm saying like we don't need party purity tests, right? Like I should be able to exist in a party. Um, based on my principles as, as being a pro-choice Republican in the same way that somebody who's, who's you know, pro-life can exist under the tent, um, that we can have hard conversations about where we are in terms of, you know, institutionalized racism and things that are actually impediments to the American dream. Um, and I think all of that naturally kind of creates a bigger space, but you have to be willing to acknowledge that there are aspects to our systems that need to be tweaked and updated and, and changed. And so th I think that's what I mean. Instead of just being like, oh, I want this big tent so that we can get more Republican voters in, mm -hmm. I want it to be a big tent that's focused on how do we actually have proactive conversations to benefit the majority of Americans in this country? And that's a little bit different, I think. Okay. One of the things I think that you are very much into is trying to obviously get more women um, 
into office, especially more moderates into office. Um, this week we saw um, Anthony Gonzalez from um, Ohio step down. And it was kind of an interesting interview in the New York Times because on one hand, it was kind of the, the typical spend time with my family, but he was also communicating another message in that he was being threat. he and his family were being threatened. And um, I think Jonah Goldberg brought something up of feeling like there doesn't seem to be a safe harbor for anyone that questions um, basically Trump or January 6th or anything to that extent. So how do you try to recruit more women who can kind of forge a different path when it seems like it's so hard um, for anyone to forge any kind of path separate from basically Trump all the way? Yeah, I think that's an excellent question. Um, and certainly the news of, of Anthony Gonzalez's, you know, retirement is, oh, that was a blow to my heart this week. Um, I think it was really hard. And I think when you look at him, he is also just like the exact type of person we want running for office as a Republican and representing the Republican Party. Um, it's, I think it's so damning about the situation that he felt the need that he was like, I can't do this. It's too toxic, right? Is basically mm -hmm. the message. I also think that if you look at what's happened since 2016, I mean, we've just seen wave after wave of retirement of, of people on the Republican side saying, like, I can't do this and it's not worth it. Um, a little bit on the institutional thing. I, I don't think that we can divorce um, Anthony Gonzalez's decision to retire from the decisions being made by the NRCC to highlight Donald Trump and to you know, use him basically for fundraising purposes while he is actively endorsing primary opponents to the people who came out against him in terms of this, the big lie on, on you know, the election being stolen and the January 6th thing, you know, insurrection, not the insurrection. Um, the NRCC traditionally has taken the stance that they absolutely under no circumstances support primary opponents to incumbents in races, right? It, it makes sense, right? It's an institutional thing. What they're, they're, the NRCC is structured to grow the majority or try to take back the majority, right? It doesn't, it doesn't suit them to, to play on and handicapping their own folks. What I think is really interesting is that that seems to have been thrown out the window because even if the NRCC is not endorsing these primary opponents, they basically are saying that they're working hand in hand with Donald Trump and he is endorsing primary opponents. So mm -hmm. if the NRCC doesn't come out and say, we don't support these primary opponents, we are still supporting our folks. It basically indicates the electorate that, that these people are not, like the people that are not with Donald Trump are not with the Republican party. They are not part of our party. And so again, I think that I see the announcement this week as being very much reflective of, a, of kind of a lack of faith in the institutions as, as well as the electorate to create space and maintain space for members kind of in the more moderate space. Um, so I think that's one thing. I think that in terms of recruiting, I think this is this is really hard, right? I, I think that it's it's hard to convince people that um, particularly women um, to run and women do need to be convinced to run oftentimes. Um, you know, men are, are just more likely to, to see themselves in that in that space and, and to step into it. I think you need to talk women through it sometimes. That's also reflective of, of being concerned. Most female candidates, the first thing they ask, um, you know, when they're thinking about running is what will this do to my family and friends and loved ones? Um, the first thing that men ask is, can I win? Like, <laughs> that's pretty much like how that breaks down. Um, and I wish sometimes that women had a little bit more of the like, oh, just can I win. Um, so I think right now the, the environment is really toxic. Um, I think from our perspective, one of the ways to create more space is for the people who are in it <laughs> to stick in it, right? Like, and I think that this is something we hear all the time from our leadership, whenever we speak to anybody or any groups or, or kind of interact, um, it's, it's hard, right? Like it's been hard and it's been lonely in some ways to be isolated politically for the last five years. And on the other hand, I feel very lucky because I look around every day and I have my community. I'm like, mm -hmm. I'm still a Republican. These are all my Republican friends. Like we don't like what's going on but like I'm not going to be kicked out of my community. 
I think across the country, people feel really isolated and they don't have the benefit of that natural tapped in community. It's so polarized right now that I think people are really afraid to speak up. So one of the best things I think we can all do is just reclaim space. And I say to people all the time, I, in some ways, feel very fortunate that, like, my natural demeanor is one of, like, I am not afraid of conflict or confrontation. I sometimes describe myself as a pugilist. So, like, for me, fighting for my space, like, it feels fine to me, right? And I know that other people don't feel comfortable. So my part in this is to, like, fight for my space. And then if you get to, like, stand and, like, find some space behind me, like, perfect. I'm like, let's start building that because I just think people are, are really scared. They're really scared about getting kicked out of their communities. And I think for our elected officials, it's even scarier. I mean, they're scared of physical violence um, against themselves and their loved ones. And that is utterly unacceptable. Um, that is not the country that we, I don't think any of us want to live in. No, indeed. I think the other thing that's related to this is um, how women have basically responded to the change in, in the GOP. You know, on the one hand, you have someone like uh, Liz Cheney, um, who doesn't budge from what she believes in and is willing to pay the price for it. And she did, unfortunately. Um, on the other hand, you have someone like Elise Stefanik, who was kind of a never Trumper and then you know, last I knew was doing some stuff that was really coming close to white nationalism. Um, have you seen how our women kind of, who are currently in office or thinking about it, how are they responding to all of this? And because it seems like, you know, those are kind of two avatars of, of choices of how to deal with this. Um, you know, it, it just seems like that's where people are left of these, yeah. it's, it's white or black, yay or nay. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think a huge problem that we have right now is, um, and something that Reed spoke to you about, but I think the lack of political courage is pretty staggering um, at this point. Like nobody wants, nobody wants to raise the ire of when he was in office, Donald Trump, nobody wants to raise the ire of his kind of acolytes. Um, and so I think unless it is, unless the political calculation has been, I think I can survive it, right? Like, and I, I mean, I do not want that to be taken in the sense of like, can I survive it physically? But like, unless I can politically survive this, um, I'm just going to keep my head down. So there's like that, which I think is the vast majority of kind of Republicans who are kind of fall in this moving kind of center shifting center right um, space um, in our party. And then you have, you know, the Liz Cheney's who are like, I absolutely think I can politically survive this. And I, and, you know, frankly, I'm willing to roll the dice on it. Um, and then you have Elise Stefanik, who, in my opinion, her decision to tie herself incredibly close, closely to Donald Trump during the impeachment um, was cold, hard political calculus. Like, I think from her perspective, she thought that that was her pathway to, you know, greater political capital and potentially, you know, making plays for higher offices down the road. Like, that's that's what I think that that was. I do not think, and I, I can't tell sometimes whether I think it's worse or better to be like, I don't think that you honestly hold these opinions. I think that it is purely for political purposes that she has positioned herself in the way that she has. Um, I think that nothing in her record would indicate that those would be honestly held beliefs. And again, I don't know whether I feel like that makes it, it worse or better because it feels it feels like you're willing to throw things out, out the door that you said you cared about. Um, so I think maybe this is the thing. Maybe I actually think it's just worse because, you know, you don't really seem to care about anything if you're willing to kind of go against where your values have been just for political expediency. Um, and I think for, for us, for the candidates that we've supported, we've been really, really pleased to see a lot of our women to watch from, you know, that carried over from 2018 um, into 2020 and, and managed to, to win higher office. Um, they actually have been kind of deal makers. Uh, you know, young Kim, I, you know, worked across the aisle incredibly hard to make sure that a lot of the COVID relief money for small businesses was actually allocated appropriately and that it didn't run out. Um, 
you know, Maria Elvira Salazar is working on, you know, comprehensive immigration reform issues. So I think that some of these women are just trying to like keep their heads down and do good work. Um, I think we see the same thing in the cycle in the election cycle, right? There was a real, I think, effort for, for the women that we supported as candidates to just kind of avoid talking about Donald Trump. It was as much as possible. They wanted to talk about how they were Republicans without kind of naming the elephant in the room. Pun intended. Um. <laughs> so, yeah, I think it just seems like we have this kind of situation where people have to decide how are they going to respond to it. Mm-hmm. And obviously there are always in, in politics going to be some type of political calculation. Um, but I guess it seems like you know, when, where is that, where do you draw that line? Where, where is the calculation when it runs into doing things that could be considered evil or just yeah. wrong? Um, yeah. And it seems like in some ways, um, at least Stefanik kind of crossed that line um, in, in making those calculations. Because obviously it doesn't sound like she just one day decided to believe all this stuff. I think obviously you're right. There was a kind of a, a calculus there, but it seems like, you know, how far are you willing to go? And um, it seems like she's willing to go way a little too far. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with you in the sense that I, um, I used to be a very, very big Elise Stefanik fan. Um, and I cannot count myself as a fan at this point. Um, you know, and I think that also from my perspective, when you are willing, when you are willing to undermine again, our institutions and our laws, um, I think it leads me to question whether I could ever be a fan again, because I don't know what what other times you'll be willing to make sacrifices about our basic rights. Um, and here's the thing, our government functions and our whole system of government functions on the idea that power ebbs and flows between the parties mm-hmm. and that neither party gets to say that they are the, that they are America, right? Like we are all Americans. And so like, no, I do not agree with the progressives. I, they scare me very much in terms of a lot of their policies that they're pushing. But you know what? They're Americans just like I am, right? And so like right now, they're having their day in the sun. And like when I have my day in the sun, the whole point is, is that we play under the same rules, right? Like that's what keeps us all safe and allows us all to kind of have this big compromise within our country. It doesn't work when it falls apart and when you're trying to put your thumb on the scale to make sure that your side is always in power. That is, that's not a democracy. Um, And so, yeah, I think that, um, I think I've been very disappointed and very saddened, I think, to see the pathway that that Elise has has chosen to go down. Uh, I would say that I think that it's it's going to be interesting, the political calculus on um, the Republican side has been really fascinating and disheartening to watch. Um, I think since you know Joe Biden won in, in November, um, because it was certainly our hope, um, and I think the hope of other kind of disenfranchised Republicans and people that are center right would find themselves under kind of like the banner of being Republicans. Um, it's been disappointing to see the desire to continue bending the knee. Um, to Donald Trump and the tone and the tenor that that has set in the party. Because to be very clear, Mitch McConnell has charted a very different course for the Senate and for the pathway to either like back to the majority for the Senate or how he wants to protect um, our incumbents in the Senate than what Kevin McCarthy has done in the House. And McConnell carved out space to be like, this isn't the right way. We need to like, this happened for four years. We're, we need to go a different a different direction. And, you know, Kevin McCarthy decided to go down to Mar-a-Lago, despite the fact that Donald Trump was deplatformed, and bend the knee. And that- Literally. That, it, literally. And that created a pathway to continued power and relevancy for Donald Trump, when Kevin McCarthy could have easily just been like, I mean, it would have, I mean- Steve Scalise would have gone down if Kevin McCarthy hadn't, and that was the calculus there. But like that if the House side had decided to to follow the pathway that McConnell was laying out, 
I think we'd be having very different conversations. Um, and so I think that's disappointing. And I, you know, I don't think anybody knows who's necessarily going to be right um, until we see how some of these primaries shake out in, in 22, because everybody on the Republican side, and you hear a lot about this, I think in, with the talking heads and, and on kind of like news, 24 hour news, it's this idea that like the Republican party is Donald Trump's party. We don't know how durable his base is when he's not at the top of the ticket. Um, we do know that the special elections in Georgia were in part lost because he decided to encourage his, his supporters to stay home and that it was like a stolen election and all of that. What we don't know is like how, how much does his base turn out when it's not him and when it's the midterms, right? And, mm -hmm. and when it's the primaries. And every time I read any article out in the field kind of talking to different constituencies, one of the things they mostly note is the people they're interviewing self-identify as like people who don't vote in primaries or like have never registered as Republicans, right? Like there's all this like, uh, there's this space where you're like, I don't actually know how many of you are gonna turn out. And so I think um, we certainly are, are proceeding as though, you know, the actual kind of more traditional, more institutional, you know, Republican base is what's going to turn out through these primaries in, in 22. Now, we could be totally wrong, in which case, you know, <laughs> any part of the tour, because I don't know where that puts us personally. But, you know, I'm really watching the primaries because I just I think that that's going to be a good indicator as to whether or not um, if Donald Trump is not at the top of the ticket and his base doesn't turn out then there's going to have to be some real, I think, reevaluation on the Republican side for where we want to aim. Um, if his base does turn out, then I'm going to be more likely to say that maybe people are right. And it's, you know, we've, we've totally abdicated the party to, uh, to the Trump side. Why do you think that we have the, you know, I think like you, there were, I, I and lots of others were thinking once um, if Joe Biden wins and once he get, is in the White House, that we'll just kind of move forward from Trump um, because that's how it has always happened in the past, that if someone loses, um, they don't necessarily have that much power anymore. They kind of just fade into the background or, you know, go off and paint or whatever. And um, you don't see that with Trump. He has somehow maintained some hold. We don't yet know how strong that hold is. But, you know, obviously you see someone like Kevin McCarthy going down to Mar-a-Lago. What is it that you think that he is able to kind of continue having some role, even though he not just has lost his own office, but lost the Senate and lost the House? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> That, you know, that is the million dollar question. I mean, if I could figure out what it is that speaks to people, you know, in terms of Donald Trump, because I've, ne I've never understood, it, right? Like, I, he, he has never worked for me. Like, it, I just, I cannot get in touch with a part of myself that would like lean into Donald Trump, right? Like, that just doesn't make sense to me. Um, you know, I think what has been interesting, and I, I actually... So just as a very brief aside, my sister is also in leadership for Republican Women for Progress. So we live very close together. We both live and work in DC and we walk together most mornings. So like we were just talking about this on the walk. We were talking about the politicized nature of, of kind of the vaccine situation and how strange it is. Um, but I think that there, there are parts of that that obviously tie into Donald Trump. And I think people are in this sports team mentality and they see mm -hmm. Donald Trump as being like our quarterback, right, for the Republican Party. And I think um, it has it has shut down channels of kind of of thoughtfulness and consideration of what he's actually saying because you're just caught up in having your face painted and like cheering for your team. I think that's part of it. And then look, like. Russia has run a very good disinformation and misinformation campaign in the US since probably, I think probably before 2016, um, you know, they were trying it out. And Donald Trump, when he came in, basically endorsed different conspiracy theories that are very, that is designed to feed into your emotional responses. 
And we have people that are just getting their news and their information from YouTube channels, from social media. They are just continuing to absorb information that feeds into emotional responses and shuts down space to think, I think, again, thoughtfully or with consideration about certain things. Um, and I think that by design, because Donald Trump is a showman, it gives him this avenue to constantly kind of shift where he is in a way that ma like gives him the maximum amount of impact amongst people that are tuned into what he's saying. Um, so I think it's kind of this yin yang of how people are absorbing information and then also him just being, you know, if nothing else, he is masterful at, at you know, marketing himself, right? And he knows what people wanna hear him say. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think people just hear what they want to out of his mouth and he give, he keeps giving it to them. Well, related to that, I mean, because he's not the only obviously person in the GOP that's a show person. Um, Correct. Is, you know, you think about, especially when you're thinking about women, of course, it's you think about Marjorie Taylor Greene or Lauren Boebert. And how, how hard is it? What's, what's the challenge for a woman like a young Kim who just wants to be a legislator when it seems like the party has moved more towards performing all the time. I yeah. mean, that, that Congress is not even just to, to be in, in there, it's not to put out legislation, it's just to do memes or um, kind of just be the, the crazy person for yeah. the cameras. It's really hard. I, th I mean, I don't think there's any sugarcoating it. Um, I just listened to John Boehner's On the House, which I cannot recommend highly enough to, to you or any of your listeners. It's a delightful listen. Um, and I think it felt so resonant to what's going on today because he talks a lot about the shift in DC that kind of happened when you had the ushering in of the Tea Party and the Freedom Caucus, mm -hmm. um, who are just obstructionists, right? Like they came in and they had no desire to legislate or to govern, right? They just wanted to say no to everything. I think we've seen on the left, you see the rise of the squad, right? Mm -hmm. And you see AOC, and I just recently to a friend, and they did not like this comparison, but I was like, AOC is your Jim Jordan. Like, I like they don't want to legislate, they just wanna, they want sound bites, they want attention. Um, it's far easier to just tweet out whatever you think than to actually sit in a room and crank through the hard work of drafting thoughtful legislation. Um, again, we obviously have Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert on our side. And I think the hard truth is this. The primaries skew everybody towards the extremes because you don't get that many people turning out for the primaries except for the diehards, right? And what we've seen is that you have these different districts that are consolidated power for Republicans or Democrats, right? And so they don't need, like, AOC is, doesn't have any tough races to run, right? Like, a Democrat's going to hold that seat. So, like, her winning re-election is not some big, you know, ex like, thing to celebrate for, for Democrats, right? In the same way that, like, Marjorie Taylor Greene most likely is going to win re-election. She lives in a very, very safe red district. Um, the tough part was her knocking out, uh, you know, the, the more moderate Republican that came before her. And, you know, I think that what that means is that you have people dictating kind of party message or the presumption of what the party line is for the general public. And the people that are paying the cost are those in the battleground districts and states. So like the more purple, moderate things, like these seats flip back and forth, right? Like Young Kim lost her bid for election in 2018 on the blue wave and then came in and won in 2020. So like these things just flip and flip back and forth while you have the, the more extreme parts of your party dictating kind of what it means for you to be running as a Republican. It makes it very, very hard. And I think unfortunately we're also moving away from um, the kind of standard understanding that all politics is local and we're now shifting into an all politics is national. Um, so I, I think that unfortunately the bloody battlefields of like the moderate districts, like those are the ones, those are our deal makers and people who are actually trying to get things done. And they're also the first to have to, to have much harder battles for all of the crazy things that are coming out of the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the AOCs of the parties. Going back 
historically, or at least to 2016, is as we saw um, Donald Trump kind of winning and everything, I think one of the things that I've always had a question is why there didn't seem to be a very organized opposition against him. Um, because everyone kind of saw this happening um, and probably by at some point they knew that this guy could win, but there just never seemed to be anything that could coalesce in, in kind of countering him. And even when he won and was in office, there also wasn't a kind of organized opposition within the party. Why do you think that was? I mean, that's for me personally, that's just been always a question. I've never, I always kind of sat there in 2016 thinking something was going to happen and it never really did. Mm -hmm. um, I remember having a conversation with a very good friend of mine in 2016 during the primary season. It was still pretty early on. And I made the comment to her that I was like, what's fascinating to me is that we have this really broad field of Republican candidates. And the only person that is kind of coming in and, you know, picking real fights with people, being really ugly, not wanting to talk about policy is Donald Trump. I don't understand why all of them don't just come together and say like, you know, we're not going to participate in this, um, in this debate if Donald Trump's on stage. And I think that that would have fundamentally, if that had happened early on in the primary, I think that fundamentally would have changed the outcome of 2016. Because I think not like people didn't take him seriously right and then he started chipping away and like people started falling off in the in the primary in 2016 and he was able to consolidate all of these disparate parts into an actual base and by the time that people realized that that was happening they had ceded too much ground and they had kind of validated his like his campaign by being on the stage with him and taking him seriously as a candidate, which from my perspective, he never should have been taken seriously as a candidate. And I think from the Republican side, I think it was totally about them not taking him seriously. And then also an unwillingness to basically not like collaborate, right? Cause like you can't, there are certain things that you were not allowed to do obviously when you're campaigning, but like there was no level of consideration of hey, I, I'm, I don't want to get on stage with this guy. Like, do you want to get on stage with this guy? Let's all just agree not to get on stage. Like there was no, there was no kind of like agreement of like, mm -hmm. you know what, it's actually going to be better if some of us drop out. Like we're seeing a danger here. Like maybe instead of holding on to the bitter end, you drop out earlier. You know, I think we saw that obviously. Um, we saw a similar dynamic developing in the 2020 primary on the Democratic side. And then, you know, Joe Biden surged in South Carolina and what that did is it forced Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar out of the race, which allowed mm -hmm. Joe Biden to, to basically pick up those voters that were being split amongst the three of them. I think that what we saw in the Republican side in 2016 was a fundamental unwillingness to drop out. And so you just had all of these different factions and Donald Trump just happened to win out with the most. Um, so I think that that to me is how is how the primary worked in 2016. I just think people didn't take him seriously. And then I just think there was an unwillingness to to, to table your own political desires um, for the potential good or betterment of the party. Um, and then once he came to power, I think that actually felt, I mean, the whole thing felt shocking to me, right? But the continued lack of willingness to stand up to him um, when he was in office was really unreal and surreal to me, I would say. Um, I think a lot of people were like, it's, you know, we're just going to weather the storm. I think that that he never was fully taken seriously. And then by the point that people started taking seriously, we're like, we don't want that heat. It was then this capitulation to, well, maybe he'll just go away in four years. And I think that that was bad calculus. But I think that was the calculus that was made by a lot of people in the Republican Party. I think from the electorate on on up to, to a lot of our leadership. Um, if we can get things done under him that we want, we don't see the danger. And I think I saw nothing. And I think that like our, our leadership at Republican Women for Progress saw nothing but danger in Donald Trump and in his presidency. And I think unfortunately, like it was well-founded. Mm -hmm. So what do you think are the prospects for 2024? 
um, both for president, but also, you know, in, in Senate, and I know I'm skipping 2022, but, you know, we're, we're talking a lot about whether or not, I mean, there are, are several candidates that are all thinking about running for president then, but kind of, it seems we're all also waiting to see if Trump will run again. And, um, and some people are also not taking that seriously, but, you know, what do you think if, if you could game that out, do you think that he will run or do you think it'll be something else? And will that change the party in any way? Yeah, I, a couple things. So I, a, I, there's a website called predict it, uh, which for political junkies is like a way that you can make small wagers on like political outcomes. Like Mm. you can, you can, you know, buy like, on, for like two cents a like buy or whatever you can buy like oh I think that this person's gonna win this primary right which is like so if you're a political junkie predicted is a lot of fun to like play around with um I do currently have about a dollar on like Donald Trump announcing that he's gonna run uh for uh, for president again by the end of the year but I think I made that back in like March um so I have a dollar riding on the fact that he's gonna declare that he's gonna run um it wouldn't surprise me I I mean look Donald Trump um, has an ego on it, right? He does not like the fact that he lost. Um, I don't think he's keen to get into another race because, you know, historically, it would be incredibly hard for him to go from losing in 2020 to winning in 2024. So I'm not sure whether I think his ego is big enough to think that he can overcome that historical. If it is, he's absolutely going to run again, right? If his ego is actually more sensitive to the idea of taking two losses at the hands of of Joe Biden, potentially, like, then I don't think he's going to run. So not to sound like a broken record, I think so much hinges on these, on the midterms in terms of the primaries in particular, not the midterms themselves, really, because like, Democrats are going to get a shellacking. Um, So like, that's going to happen. But the real trick is, is like, who's coming out on top? in in the different primaries that Donald Trump is weighing in on. Um, If his people come out on top, I categorically think that he will will, will declare to run, right? Because it would be an acknowledgement that his brand of Republicanism, you know, I don't even want to call it that, his brand, his brand, whatever, (laughs) his brand, right? Like, I don't even want to give it a political space because I don't think it actually has any like space in governance. Um, His brand has staying power. If they don't win, then I think what you're going to see is you're going to see like DeSantis coming out, right? Um, I think it is going to be more of, because the presidentials are starting, right, already. I mean, this is the nature of the beast. So like, yeah, I'm thinking of like who has power or like who has capital in, in the party right now. And so like, I would anticipate if Donald Trump doesn't run, which again, I think will hinge a lot on the primaries. If Donald Trump doesn't run, then I think you're looking at DeSantis, Holly, um, you know, Haley. Um, so I think like there's some people that have been making overtures. Um, and out of those three, right? Like, I'm not sure I love I love any of them because they've all kind of acquiesced to this Trumpism. Um, so I think like that gets really tricky. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I I wish I had kind of a better crystal ball, I think, for what 2024 could look like, because we also, I know we don't like to talk about this. Some people love to talk about this and some people don't, but like Joe Biden and Donald Trump are both very old. (laughs) And I feel like I am not sure I love the idea of it coming down to those two again, right? And yet I, I then, so then you're like, okay, well, if it's not Joe Biden, is it Kamala? And, you know, personally, I, I find it deeply meaningful that she broke the glass ceilings that she did. Um, But having worked with her Senate office, like, I don't love her in terms of being actually there to do the job of governance, right? Mm -hmm. So you're like, okay, well, is it Kamala? Is it Pete Buttigieg on on the left? And then you look to to our side, you're like, okay, well, I guess we're, I guess it's Holly and DeSantis and Haley, like, that feels like we're missing a huge, huge swath of the country in the middle that actually wouldn't like either one of those choices. Um, which again, I think is the real problem with 
things just continuing to get more polarized in either direction is that most of us are somewhere in the middle and most of us are not actually being represented. Um, getting back to kind of um, Republican Women uh, for Progress and for 2022, yeah. um, where are you or is the organization doing anything to support incumbents in office? So this is kind of, again, Liz Cheney or Jamie Herrera uh, Butler yes. in Washington. Um, is there any effort to try to support them? Because of course they're getting a lot of, of blowback from um, the Trump Trumpist wing and to try to you know make sure that they stay in office. Yes, absolutely. So Republican Women for Progress is a 501c4. Mm -hmm. So we can't actively endorse candidates, but what we can do is we have our policy principles. And so that what we have to do is basically like say, we support these policy principles. You know who else supports these policy principles? Liz Shady, Jamie Herrera Butler. So like from an institutional standpoint, that's kind of where we are. We have written multiple different press releases. We take a lot of opportunities whenever we um, are asked to comment on things um, to draw attention to them as, as people who we think are, are really positive for our party and that we need to be supporting. Personally, we are also, all of our leadership, basically all of our board are talking about what we can do from doing fundraisers as, as you know, setting up fundraisers personally, um, doing, I mean, I'm, I'm even talking about going out and door knocking for, for Liz Cheney, um, out in Wyoming. Um, I'm also thinking about going door knocking for Murkowski out in Alaska, although she mm. needs less help. Um, I mean, she is, those two are such battle axes. I have so much respect for both of them. Um, so I think like there's a lot of, of personal efforts that are going to go in here. I think institutionally, just creating more cover for them in, in the sense of saying, hey, they represent a, actually a bigger swath of the Republican party than I think you guys, you guys, the press and the media pay attention to. And then I think the other thing is looking at, um, at different PACs that support women like them. Um, so VIEW PAC, which is Value in Electing Women, um, is run by a woman named Julie Conway, who is just first first in class um, in terms of understanding what it what it takes to get Republican women elected on the federal level. Um, View PAC makes donations and primaries, um, and is just kind of it's it's a spectacular organization in PAC. Um, and so Julie has done a lot of different fundraisers for them. Um, you know, we'll continue to be partnered with her. We usually try to try to do whatever we can to, to work with Julie. Um, but I think like that's really kind of where we are. We absolutely want to want to see those incumbents. And um, we actually have been talking with, again, my sister is our political director. So she has a whole list of kind of women to watch that are already kind of rising um, that we're keeping track of. And then we also are expanding our list probably to include, um, you know, the Kinzingers, the Myers, unfortunately not the Gonzalez <laughs> right now, but, you know, looking at broadening outside of just women, but saying like, these are really good members and they fall into our buckets of good governance. So like, mm -hmm. what can we do to provide them some space and, and again, create this, um, the shift in understanding that it's a foregone conclusion that they're just dead in the water uh, politically. And what do you think are the prospects for 2022 when it comes to uh, at least maybe finding people who may want to run? Um, and then if they run, can they kind of deal with the headwind, headwinds that are definitely going to be coming their way? Yeah, I, you know, I think um, I am curious to see, and I think we're kind of getting into this space where people are declaring, they're, they're filing their paperwork, they're, they're getting their legs under them. Um, in 2020, 2018, we saw a lot of a lot of women running on both sides of the aisle, way more obviously on the Democratic side, and then Democrats kind of picked up all these seats. Um, in 2020, we saw an even bigger number of Republican women running because they kind of were inspired by, I think, what happened in 2018 on the Democratic side. And they said, like, why am I not running? And also, like, if I don't use my voice, then somebody else is just going to use their voice, right? So I might as well get, get into the racers. I... I'm curious to see with the current climate and what's gone on, you know, January 6th, we still haven't managed to get it together. We still haven't managed to have, I think on our side of the aisle, um, an honest 
conversation about what that was. Um, and I, I'm curious to see how that's going to impact the willingness of Republican women to, to file and to run, because it's one thing to say like campaigning and, and holding office are hard on personal relationships. It is another to say, I am comfortable taking on the potential that I will have regular death threats that might be credible. Um, even if they're not credible, it's still like a lot of ugliness being spewed at you and your family, the possibility of having your family targeted. Those feel like real impediments to women for running. I think they're impediments for everybody, but I think particularly for how women conceptualize running for office and the impacts that it will have. Um, I think that that's going to be a huge barrier. So I am curious to see what numbers we see of Republican women running for office. We know that the institutions have finally kind of woken up um, to the power of, I think, Republican women as voters and as candidates. So there's a desire to recruit more women. And I'm not sure how that's going to shake out. And also, it makes me a little nervous that some of the women who would have those concerns would not be the ones that actually go through the recruitment, but that we would end up with more kind of virulent like Marjorie Taylor Greens um, or women kind of of that oak um, that are the ones that are like, yes, please recruit me, I'll run, I'll run. Uh, I'm not worried at all, right? Um, I carry my gun everywhere, right? Like I think like that's kind of my other fear. So um, we're working on it. I know that we have conversations daily with women who, who are thinking about running, who want to get trained to run. Um, a lot of young women um, who are kind of in the more conservative space that um, want to find their pathway uh, to serving in office. And, you know, we also are big believers. I want people in office who can, who know what they're getting into and also can do the job. So like for a lot of younger women we speak to, we always recommend like start at the state and local. Like you are not gonna wanna jump into a Senate race. You are not gonna even wanna jump into like a congressional race if you've not served in office before. And, you know, frankly, like that would be setting you up for, for failure in my opinion. So like, let's start you out state, local. Let's get you in there, see if you like it, see if it works for you and then like take it from there. So I think our state and local numbers will be good. I think the federal level will be more interesting to see who's, who's still willing to run uh, with the environment being what it is. So, um, getting close to wrapping this up, but this is one question that has been in the back of my mind for a long time um, with, with you particularly, but what keeps you hopeful? Because I think so many people that I've talked to over the years have pretty much given up that they think the Republican Party is, is done. Um, it's Trump's party. It's not going back. What gives you hope that you can still create some space, that you can still um, make this a big tent party? Um, because mm -hmm. so many people have just given that, given up that hope. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first of all, I would say that I do have some minor annoyance with everybody who say, everybody leaving the party and then saying like, it's over. And I'm like, yeah. And if we had just stayed, guys, like, maybe if we all kind of just like work together, it wouldn't feel as hopeless for you. Uh, that's a personal annoyance I have sometimes. Um, but I think what gives me hope is honestly, a lot of the young women that I speak to, because I, I'll give you this example. We had a spectacular intern this summer. Now, I come from a background, again, New England Republican. Religion doesn't, I was not raised in a religious household. Religion does not factor at all in terms of how I conceptualize myself as a Republican. Our intern comes from like a Southern, very religious background. And yet her perspective, I felt like I was speaking to myself so many days. Like the things that she was saying in terms of her values and where she saw the government and where she saw the limits of where government should push versus like what government is responsible for were so close to what I can how I conceptualize a good functioning kind of Republican party and, and government. Um, and she's 18 years old, 18 years old, you know, from the South. And I just like could not believe for the life of me, I was like, we should not be speaking the exact same language. And we absolutely are. And I think speaking to her, speaking to, and she's just like one of like many young women that, that we have the opportunity to, to speak with and to work with. And I think it's them that give me hope because mm. I think we don't all need to have the same perspectives. In fact, I think 
our government is better suited when we have a variety of perspectives uh, represented. I think you get better legislation out of that. But I think understanding that there is a growing population of younger conservatives who are like, this doesn't, this doesn't represent us and we, we don't think we're Democrats. We want something different is what gives me hope. Um, and I, I think without that, you know, I don't know what our prospects are. You know, we've just hemorrhaged, hemorrhaged support amongst, you know, younger demographics and women and, you know, people from different racial and ethnic backgrounds. Um, and so I think to see still this kind of like, I think of it as like an ember, right? Like, I think we have these embers in young people that are more thoughtful than we're giving them credit for. Mm. And what we need to do is like, find a way to give them space to kind of like catch a flame. And then also to, to not be scared off from being Republicans to say like, mm, I'm look, I'm fine. I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. You might not think I'm a Republican, but like, what you think of me doesn't really matter to me in terms of like how I'm defining myself. Um, and so I think just trying to fan fan those embers and, and let them catch flame is where I find hope these days. Well, and I think that that's something that's desperately needed in this time. Um, it seems, as you've said, and um, to many people kind of write it off and um, maybe it's not done yet. I don't think it is. I mean, I am under no delusions that it is anywhere close to being over, but like, <laughs> I don't, I, you know, I, I think I, I have said this before and I will say it again. I am not represented by either party right now. And I think a mm -hmm. lot of people feel that way, but at some point we live in a two party system right now. So you got to pick your, you got to pick your party and you got to fight for your space in it. And here's the thing. I'm not going to fight in the democratic side because honestly at their core, they don't represent a lot of my values. I think that there is still more space that I could claim for myself within the Republican party. And so that is where I'm choosing to fight. But like either one is a fight. You just gotta like find, find, your, find your space, grind it out, find the people that, that you know, speak your language and you know, figure out how to get involved. Cause I think um, I'm, not, I'm not one for kind of hand wringing these days. Mm -hmm. I don't think it gets anybody anywhere. Yeah, there's a lot of hand wringing. This is. <laughs> there's so much hand wringing. There's so much hand wringing. I actually, just as an aside, and I know that this is like such a it's such a hot topic, right? And like people get very fired up. But I mentioned this, right? Like I'm very pro-choice. The stuff going on in Texas, I had to say to all of my kind of democratic, more liberal friends, stop with the hand wringing, y'all. Like this was always this this was a fee that was late in coming from 2016. Like this this was exactly how this was gonna end up. And so you acting like it's a surprise means that you weren't paying attention. So like, can we stop? Um, and I just, yeah, I feel like you just roll up your sleeves. Everyone just needs to roll up their sleeves and like get in there. If you wanna run for something, run for something. Um, you gotta vote in every single election that comes your way primaries, everything down to the dog catcher, run, you know, vote in it because that's where your power is. I, you know, I think we would all do, but you know, better if we remembered that and kind of reclaim some of our power throughout the entire process. Well, that's a good way and a hopeful way of ending um, this interview. So thank you so much. This has been really great and um, hopefully we can talk again. Yeah, absolutely. This was such a pleasure, Dennis. And um, I'm so glad, again, that Reed connected us. And I, I think you're doing such great work with this podcast. So thank you for the opportunity. And, you know, if you ever want to have any other conversations with Republican women, we're happy to hook you up with anyone we can. Okay, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was great talking to you. So um, take care. Yeah, and you have too. Have a good day. All right. Bye. Bye. <laughs> for taking the time to talk with me. One of the things in my interview with Ariel that stuck with me 
is the importance of standing your ground in the face of bullies. You can't blame people like Anthony Gonzalez for wanting to give up and walk away from what might have been in any other time a successful congressional career, especially when loved ones are threatened. That said, there is also something about standing up for what you believe in. So I'm glad to see that there are organizations such as Republican Women for Progress that are out there rooted in values that the GOP used to believe in. Is it a fool's errand? Maybe. But sometimes it's better to try and fail than to just give up. I want to thank you again for listening. Make sure to visit our website, enroodpodcast, all one word, dot org, where you can sign up to be on the mailing list of the newsletter, Letters of Transit, listen to past episodes, and read some past articles that I've written. While you're at the website, consider supporting this podcast by making a donation. Your gifts help cover some of the costs associated with this podcast, and it allows me to continue to produce content that's worth a listen. You can donate at the Enroot website by going to enrootpodcast.org backslash donate. That's it for this episode of Enroot, Notes on Religion, Politics, and Culture. I'm Dennis Sanders, your host. Take care and Godspeed.